You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And again, we are doing a spoiler-free episode. We're just going to talk about the series up through episode two of season two called Governed by Sound Reason and True Religion. So I gotta say, this the episode title made a lot of sense to me. It did. It's hard to remember, but it makes a lot of sense. Yes. And we should say, because we didn't know last week, that that first season, the titles were coming from Darwin's... Coming from Darwin's Origin of Species. Thank you, Chris. And this season, the episode title seems to be coming from works by Francis Bacon. They've come from two different ones so far. The, this week's quote came from the new Organon. I forget what last week's episode title came from. So they have switched scientists, but they're still pulling weird episode titles out of scientific works. Apparently, the real Cosima is the one who names the episodes. Really? Did you not know that? I did not. I read that somewhere. That's good to know. And by the real Cosima, we mean the science consultant. Yes, Cosima Herder. Yeah. Who is on Twitter at real Cosima. Which I kind of love. Yes. So I, I had a, a chuckle when Cosima declares herself the real Cosima in this week's episode. Because she's not really the real Cosima. Because Cosima Herder's the real Cosima. Anyway, so this episode, not quite as like jam action packed as last episode, but a lot of stuff still was happening. And I am just as nervous about our beloved characters this week as I was last week. I am more nervous this week, I think, than I was last week. <laughs> it took me a while to calm down after watching the episode last night. I don't know if you noticed, I was pretty wound up last night. <laughs> I did see a little bit on Twitter, but I was staying staying away from Twitter to to avoid spoilers because I wasn't we weren't able to watch it together when it originally aired this week so we are recording it the next day but still this is our fairly immediate reaction to the episode so I think my most immediate reaction was holy crap Mrs S is terrifying you did in fact message that to me immediately upon seeing the episode I think yes but she's terrifying in a good way I think because she from what we can tell in this episode is probably on Sarah's side it would seem that way yeah we certainly hope it's that way yeah. If I may speak for you. Yeah. But, you know, I think we have this overall sense from this episode that you really do not want to mess with Sarah's family. No, no. Sarah and Mrs. S will both mess you up. Thoroughly. And we see that in at the beginning of, of this episode that Sarah has gotten Art up to speed as regards to the clone situation. As Felix says when he comes over, I can't believe you in inducted a cop into Clone Club. And... We have to mention an email that we got from Wilfred last week. We got a lot of amazing feedback emails from folks this past week, so thank you th so much for sending those in. And Wilfred, he sent in an email. The subject line was, Art's a hero. And there was more to the email than this, but the basic sentiment was, the reason for me to write this is to ask Chris, how's Art looking now? LOL, I knew he was a good guy. And Chris just wants to say... It wasn't me, Wilfred. <laughs> I've always liked Art. I've defended Art when Stephanie would talk smack. <laughs> it's me, Wilfred, who thought that Art was inconsistent at the beginning of first season. So, Chris... Just wants to vindicate herself. It's me. I've been falsely accused. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I wouldn't go so far at the end of the episode last week to say that Art was a hero. That line he had to Angie about she almost trusts me and was very ambiguous. But I think we really do see in this episode, he does seem to be on Sarah's side. I think so, yeah. And it was good to see him and Sarah kind of working together a little bit, but this time with her not being in a cop role. Right. And, you know, therefore also not lying. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
and they follow the trail to the hotel after Kira, smart, sweet little Kira, calls Uncle Felix. I loved that she knew his number off the top of her head that, to call him. And that just I thought that was sweet that she knew Felix's cell phone number. Yes. Yeah. And Sarah has to go through this, as Mrs. S calls it, an airlock to get to where she and her buddies are, are keeping Kira. And we get to see, you know, this is where Sarah and Felix kind of grew up for a little bit when they came to, to the UK. Or sorry, came to, to Canada from the UK. Right. It's interesting that Sarah remembers that part of their lives well enough to remember the woman's name and SM and FD forever carved in the headboard and and she remembered, oh, there's where Uncle Felix hit his head on the corner of the table because your mother was helping him down the stairs head first. <laughs> totally believe it. Yes. I can't imagine those two wouldn't roughhouse. Oh, no, no, no. They totally did. They totally did. <laughs> and Felix probably got beat up a lot, I'm guessing. Probably so. In a, you know, sibling way. Right. In a, in a loving way. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was really great to see Sarah and Kira get get reunited. I, I we had somebody Marshall emailed us saying that he was kind of disappointed they were reunited so quickly. I personally was kind of glad it didn't draw out for a really long time. Yeah, me too. That was stressing me the hell out. Yes, yes. But we do have kind of this. Marshall referred to it as the the triple fake out of oh, it's the Dyad Institute who took Kira. Oh no, it's actually the Prolethians who took Kira. Oh no, it's actually Mrs. S. But I don't know if it was quite a triple fake out because we realized that the Prolethians were kind of involved indirectly with Mrs. S hiding Kira. It's a quadruple fake out. Okay, there we go. It's, <laughs> it's not less than a triple fake out. It's more than a triple fake out. It's not this person, this person, or this person. It's this person unknowingly in concert with the second person. Mm -hmm. Don't you know? Yes. Although I, I've got to mention, Sally called it on the Prolethian front. Yes, Sally, Sally is our friend. We've mentioned her many times, who is very opinionated. She was on our clone science episode. I don't mean opinionated in a bad way. She's got good <laughs> theories. But she was on our clone science episode, episode well, 17. She, she mentioned it in the speculation episode, which was oh, okay. episode 28. Okay. 27? No, it was 27. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't on that episode, so. I know. That's I why know. I'm telling you that that's... That's Thank you. She she mentioned it on episode 27. Okay. That she thought it was going to be the Prolethians who took Kira. So way to go, Sally. She was half right. She was half right and we were half right because we thought Mrs. S probably had her. So Actually, I, I was 100% certain that Mrs. S had her when Benjamin was getting Sarah out of the trunk. And he says to her, if you're not too stroppy, I'll help you out. I was like, oh, he's totally Mrs. S's people because she would totally <laughs> describe Sarah as stroppy. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> but well, I figured it couldn't be anything too bad since they had Sarah, too. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Yeah. But what I really, really loved is seeing the interaction between Sarah and Kira in this episode, where we really see Sarah just knowing how smart and intuitive that Kira is. I loved seeing her consult Kira about what they should do in regards to either staying where they were or leaving Miss and trusting Mrs. S or leaving. Right. That whole Mrs. S has secrets, but probably most mostly good secrets or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that what she says? And and Kira's kind of like, maybe, but I don't think so. And and I, I just, I love it that Sarah just completely takes Kira at her word and, like, trusts her so much to act on whatever it is that Kira tells her. I agree. I really, I really loved that moment. And then in regards to, to Mrs. S, 
I really felt kind of bad for her, but I, I also really love the moment where Sarah is, was leaving with Kira in the truck and, you know, Mrs. S shoots that guy so that Sarah can, is okay and can leave. And then she just stands aside and lets Sarah go, even though I really do think she's on Sarah's side and Sarah probably can trust her. I think Mrs. S was so disappointed in herself that she wasn't able to protect Kira the way that she thought she could. Right. I thought it was so interesting that earlier in the episode, Mrs. S describes her care of Kira as bulletproof. It's like, huh, it's kind of ironic considering things that happen later or significant, obviously. But yeah, I I do think that moment where Mrs. S steps aside to let them leave, I think that's the only way she could have played it that Sarah would actually trust her at any point in the future. If she tried to join them, I think Sarah would always be suspicious. Yeah, I agree. I, I think at that at that time, that was the best she could do. Mm-hmm. But I also think it was almost a little bit of punishment for herself for not taking care of Kira. Maybe that's me reading too much into it, but it was it was just this moment of I failed this little girl. Yeah, and possibly. I'm, and I need to step aside now because I thought that I had everything figured out, but I didn't. I got tricked. Of course, I'm curious what else is going on here. Because obviously Mrs. S still has secrets. Obviously. Project Lita. And why does she lie to Sarah about Project Lita? Why, Mrs. S? Why? Because we have eight episodes left in the season. Fair enough. (laughs) Is the practical reason. But um, I'm really, really interested to see where they're going to go with Mrs. S for the rest of the season, now that she's not taking care of Kira, since that was her primary role in the first season. Is she going to be, like, badassing around Canada and shooting people with her shotgun? That's what I hope. I I totally ship Mrs. S and her shotgun. And her awesome hair. Yeah. (laughs) We talk about Delphine's hair a lot, but she had really good hair in this episode. She really did. She did. And my partner has a huge crush on Mrs. S and was very happy with this episode. My partner was all, I ship Mrs. S and her leftist politics. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I really have this idea of Mrs. S being a badass, either around Canada, around the UK, or both, trying to get some answers, especially now that she has the sense that her network has been infiltrated, that who she thought was sort of beyond reproach in regards to who she could trust is not the case anymore. Here you go, Orphan Black Producers. Spinoff idea. Mrs. S, international badass. (laughs) I would totally watch that. I would too. So moving on to Allison. Poor, poor Allison. I loved her her Audrey Hepburn-inspired look at the funeral. And her hair was down for a lot of this episode. It was interesting. It was so weird to me. I was like, what is so different about... Oh, her hair is down. Because I think she wore her hair down maybe once in the first season. But it it was... If not, it was always up in a ponytail. Allison has her hair in a ponytail more often than I do. I have my hair in a ponytail a lot. But it's in a ponytail right now, in fact. It is. <laughs> but I think she had her hair down once in the first season. But, you know, she she had her hair down for an extended period of time in this episode. And yes, it was very jarring to see her it's with like her hair like that. Something just feels off, which of course is what they're going for. Yes. Because something is off. She's kind of spinning out of control. And yeah, I if if she wouldn't have rejected it, I would want to give Allison a hug. Yeah. But she would. She would reject it. She would. She would. Poor Sarah Stubbs. 
Because, you know, we see that she figures out that Donnie is her monitor. She thought she had signed this contract. Ainsley was gone. Her life was kind of getting back to normal. Maybe finally. Nope. <laughs> she effed it all up again. <laughs> and, you know, Donnie... Ugh. <laughs> He's done so well being a monitor and kind of going under the radar so far, but he did not do well in this episode at all. No, I have decided that Donnie is a good monitor, but a terrible spy. Well, and I get the feeling that that, you know, espionage thing is not what's normally expected of him. Well, to, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. To like follow her and stuff. So he was really bad at it because he was actually pretty good at coming up with a lie as to why he might have been there when he gets caught. But... You know, this ridiculous hiding behind trees and ducking behind <laughs> gravestones. No, Donnie, no. I believe Kristen Brune said that Karen Walton had written in the script something about Donnie Pink Panthers' his way through the graveyard. Nice. <laughs> he totally did. <laughs> and I liked the way that Allison and Felix colluded to set up that meeting to get, you know, to, to lay the trap for Donnie. Because when we are introduced to Sarah Stubbs at the musical at the beginning of, toward the beginning of the episode. I was thinking... Last episode. Well, we meet... I don't... Did they say her name? They said her name. But okay. They, I don't think they directly called her Sarah Stubbs. Okay. But they mentioned Sarah Stubbs, but they did, I think online, something referred to her as Sarah Stubbs. Yeah. So. I knew they mentioned her last episode, but I didn't connect who that was until this episode. And I was thinking, why did they name Allison's co-star Sarah? That's really confusing since we've got Sarah Manning. And then this episode, I thought, oh, that's why. It's not confusing. It's convenient. convenient. Exactly. <laughs> and I got to say, I really like Sarah Stubbs. I really dig that actress who's playing her. I think she's fantastic. Me too. I, I actually saw somebody online who sort of had some issue with Sarah Stubbs and thought she was like a creepy stalker. But I actually really like her because basically, here's somebody who's seen Allison fall out with her usual in crowd. You know, the I, I gather they're like the neighborhood in crowd, right? Mm -hmm. The the popular girls, the exactly <laughs> in the neighborhood. So yeah, I, I think she's sort of seen this happen, and she's being a friend to Allison when Allison really needs one. Of course, Allison won't really have one, but but that's beside the point. I th I thought it was actually really nice of Sarah to to try and befriend Allison in her time of need. That was the vibe I got from her, too, that Allison in that group, that was, like you said, the in-crowd of the neighborhood, and maybe Sarah Stubbs is outside of that. And so now that she's seeing Allison kind of get pushed out of that circle, she's kind of a familiar with what that is like and is trying to befriend her. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe Sarah Stubbs is like a backup monitor to Donnie. But I, I still really dig the actress and what she's doing with the part. I like her a lot. <laughs> Because she is, she's so nice. She is. And Allison is just having none of it. No. No. I wish she would, though. You need a friend, Allison. Try Sarah. Because, I mean, she's your blood bud, right? <laughs> <laughs> they are blood buds. Because <laughs> the musical continues to be absolutely hilarious. Thank you so much, Orphan Black Riders. <laughs> I never knew I wanted this, but oh my gosh. It is fantastic. I laughed my way through it. It's very Waiting for Guffman, and and I love that movie, and I am really enjoying the hell out of what they're doing with this community theater. 
Oh, man. Except for the director, the creepy, gross director. Yes. The creepy, gross, handsy director. Yes, that was very gross and handsy. Though the actor's doing a fantastic job with that part. Like, he's nailing that guy. But yes, the, the guy himself is gross and creepy. Yes. And... Uh, but, but, and we were talking about the fact that that moment between him and Allison was really kind of another nod to, I think, what the, uh, a larger theme of the show, this idea of these, these women learning that they're owned by Dyad, that they, you know, they are property of this, this scientific organization. This was kind of a, an everyday nod to how women's bodies are often considered to need to be accessible to men in particular. It kind of a, smaller moments demonstrating a larger theme of the series in a kind of a different everyday context I thought was was kind of neat. Right. Neat in a creepy gross way. <laughs> yeah, neat's probably not the right word. Sorry. <laughs> it was a neat bit of writing, but the actual thing that happened, not so neat. As I sit there going, <laughs> yeah. And I really, I, I did, however, really liked when, when the director was getting all handsy and Allison says, Alexander, that's my sacrum. The way that Tatiana Maslany delivered that line was really great. And the, oh, thank God, when Felix shows up. Yes. And we get that really lovely confession between Allison and Felix, and Felix trying to do his best, but not really sure what to do. You know, I killed Ainsley. No, not, not, hardly. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> and she wore a scarf in the kitchen. She, yeah. Because, yeah. That was just, again, she wore a scarf in the kitchen and tried to put something felt down a garbage disposal. Not good life choices, Ainsley. I know you shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but that was not smart. Oh, Ainsley. But, you know, we and we see in this scene with, with Felix that Allison's just losing it. You know, she realizes that her husband's probably her monitor. She killed this woman or let this woman die because she thought she was her monitor and she was wrong. And, you know, she's chugging the little airplane-sized bottles of, I think it was vodka. It looked like vodka, yeah. And they have that great exchange of, you know, I think Felix says, do you do you have an idea or, or do you need to keep drinking? <laughs> and Alex Nelson. I think I need to keep drinking for a while and then I'll have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of worry if that was ad-libbed by, by Jordan and Tatiana. It had a bit of spontaneity about it, but maybe it was scripted. Hard to tell. It was a great moment, though. It really was. Yeah, Allison's sobriety did not last long. Not that I thought it would. No. But. Well, because as we pointed out, well, maybe we forgot to point out, you know, she said in the in the premiere, I've stopped drinking, no more little helpers. And that was supposed to be later that same day of the finale. It's like you were drinking several hours ago. <laughs> I can't, don't know that you can necessarily say you stopped drinking quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she's made the decision. Yes. <laughs> And that's an important step. It is. I should not discount that. She might have sobered up by that point. I don't know. But, you know, speaking of Felix, we see him really be kind of a, a clone counselor in this episode. He was. He was very much in, like, clone assistant mode. So it was clone counseling for, for Allison and for Sarah. I love that moment at the beginning of the episode that he has with Sarah, where Sarah says something to him about, I'm going to go do this, and then we'll get out of here, or whatever it is she says. And... And Felix kind of has the remark to himself, like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. And and so Sarah's like, you know, no, I, I, I need you to keep telling me that we'll be okay. And, and then Felix gets really serious and says, we'll, we'll be okay. I love that moment. I love it so much. As Stephanie laughs at me. No, I'm not laughing at you. It was a really fantastic moment between 
Sarah and Felix. We haven't gotten a whole lot of Sarah Felix time these past couple episodes because Sarah's been so busy running. But but we have gotten through walls. Exactly. But we have gotten some really quality Sarah Felix moments. And that was a really good one. It was. It was nice. And then we also see Felix provide new clone phones, which makes me happy. I was worried last week that there'd be no more clone phones. (laughs) But now they're green, which makes me even happier because I kind of want to get a green phone cover. (laughs) And I kind of wanted to get a pink phone cover before, but I don't like pink and I like green. So... (laughs) See, again, you haven't, Stephanie doesn't watch the promos, so she didn't know about the green phones, but we, we talked about this on our speculation episode too. Okay. So we were like, what's with the green phones? And we, anyway, I was about to say something, but that hasn't happened yet, so never mind. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I'm really annoyed at BBC America for putting on their website before you could, I rewatched the premiere on their website, and they put the promo for the season at the beginning of the episode. So now I've seen a couple of scenes that I hadn't seen previously. I'm annoyed at you, BBC America. I'd done so well at not seeing any of the promos. Bah! But anyway, so back to Felix. <laughs> we have the return of Felix's bum painting in the nude, and he's painting Teddy, who we mentioned we kind of love. And is also nude. Yes. What was he holding in front of his junk? Football. A football. Okay. That was a football. Okay. I couldn't tell. I thought it was on the first watch through, but I watched it again. And it's like, you know, that's definitely a football. Okay. I knew he was holding something in front of his man junk, but I couldn't tell what it was. And again, Teddy has no lines, but I still love Teddy. He just seems like such a happy guy. (laughs) He does. (laughs) Teddy. And then we've got Kasima in this episode. I think all of Kasima's scenes in this episode are in Dyad, right? Mm-hmm. And with Delphine. Right. But that opening scene where they're they're basically talking about fake Kasima, you know, and, and the havoc wrought by Sarah as Kasima. And I, I just love it. Delphine says, you know, well we were fooled by by Sarah too, and, and Kasima Kasima kinda Really? <laughs> and she just has that sort of smile. I'm I'm amused by by Kasima's amusement. Well, and they were lying through their teeth, right? Oh yeah. Okay, because I wasn't entirely sure about Delphine. Like, no, Delphine has has been in Felix's apartment. She knows Kasima and Sarah are like buds. So, but that seems to be a big theme of this episode: is lies. Everybody's lying to somebody in this episode. Uh, that might be a theme of the season. True. I think. True. The way the season is going. Yeah. I'm so worried. <laughs> but, yeah, I like the follow-up to Sarah pretending to be Kasima, both in Leaky's office and then when Rachel comes into Kasima's lab and Kasima says, Hi, I'm the real Kasima, not the Kasima that kicked your ass or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Kasima just seems so pleased with Sarah. I know, because she makes that crack about cas- about concealer, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's yeah. Kasima's being very cheeky, as, as Leaky and Delphine would say in this episode. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking during the episode, I don't know that we've ever seen Kasima be this pleased with Sarah. Yeah. Because normally they're, as we've discussed, they're kind of at odds, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. But no, she seemed very pleased with, with Sarah Sarah's antics from last week's episode. But Really? She stole your, your pass card? But, you know, we have the introduction of Kasima's lab, which Sarah got for her. And (laughs) and even though they figured out it wasn't Kasima, they found out that it was Sarah and Sarah kicked the crap out of Rachel and, you know, hit Paul in the face. But 
But no, we'll still give you your lab. Well, it kind of makes practical sense given that it does. You know, she's a clone, and probably they don't want any of the other scientists to necessarily see her. So it makes sense that she would be in, as she says, clone jail. Right. In the older wing of Dyad. I mean, Kasim is not happy with clone jail because it's kind of an empty workspace, an old empty workspace. But Leaky basically gives her carte blanche to list whatever you want. He mentions personnel, I noticed. So that'll be interesting what what comes up with that. Like, I wonder if you think she's going to bring Scott up? Hmm. Since I she's basically still got him working for her? Maybe. I think, though, she'd want to keep that separate from Dyad, because she's trying to run some of her own tests. We'll see. Yeah. But Clone Jail is also apparently science girlfriend flirty time territory, because they were being super flirty while making the lists of what equipment Kasima would need. <laughs> it was sort of interesting that they were being all sort of, like, domesticy and stuff and in like a sciencey way. Yes. With Delphine making the shopping list for her and and Delphine kept saying things like like we we will do this in in our lab. How many times did she say our lab? I didn't <laughs> I think it was at least two or three times. Yeah, right? so basically this is like the science girlfriend equivalent of you hauling. They haven't been dating all that long and they're moving in together in a scientific way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how else are they going to make crazy science with each other? I know, I know. I, I like the callback to to that line from Entangled Bank when Delphine said it to Leaky. Yes. Apparently, also, crazy science. I think we can substitute that with the word out. Right? Because <laughs> <sighs> they were totally smooching, and Delphine looked so pissed and then terrified when she realized that Rachel had walked in on them kissing in the lab. That reaction cracks me up. And the fact that she kind of doesn't react immediately, like, Kasima hears the door open. <laughs> Kasima pulls back, and then Delphine's like, what? And she turns, and she glares at the door. <laughs> it's like a wide-eyed glare. <laughs> and then, oh, crap. <laughs> that must be... Or <laughs> I love Kasima's reaction to meeting Rachel, too. And she's like, hello, Rachel Duncan. You sure are. <laughs> And, and, you know, we see this little, this little exchange between Kasima and Rachel, where Rachel basically reveals that they'd been tracking Kasima's health through her, her GP at the University of Minnesota. She mentions that, you know, in your last round of tests, blah, blah, blah. So, or at least that's what they tell her. True, true. Maybe they were monitoring her in her sleep. Well, but Delphine gave him the vial of blood last week. Oh, that's, well, okay, good point. So it could be from that. Cause, Kasima, got suspicious when they said that. And then that's when they told her that she had her blood taken a couple weeks ago. So so it could be either, but probably it's from the blood vial that Delphine gave them. And then Rachel gives Kasima Sarah's genome and says, basically, I want you to figure out why she's different from us. And the thing I wonder about that, do we think that she's doing that without Leaky's knowledge? I don't know. That's an interesting idea that maybe she's going around leaky. Yeah, it's possible that Rachel is losing faith in Leaky's abilities or maybe questioning his motives or something of that sort. Another thing, since we're talking about Rachel, she says to Kasima, I assure you the original DNA was robust. We believe our issues stem from the cloning procedure. That statement, for some reason, rang alarm bells in my head. 
What do we think that means? The original, you know, I assure you the original DNA was robust. Yeah, that makes me wonder if they weren't created from synthetic DNA rather than DNA that they took from a woman. But I could be wrong. But yeah, that did ring a lot of bells for me, too. What exactly does she mean by the original DNA was robust? It sounds significant, right? I mean... Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say synthetic DNA. I think that's wrong. Like, synthesized DNA. DNA that they made versus DNA that they took from a human. Mm -hmm. So, poor Helena. We were so, personally, I was so happy to see her last week that I missed something kind of critical. Because we got a, a tweet from Rebecca on Twitter, who is Rebecca TBS, her username. And she said, I can't believe you didn't mention that Helena was all, you know, hardcore duct tape, belt around her, staggering into the hospital. And I honestly did not notice <laughs> the first time I watched it. I noticed the duct tape because, you know, like that's it, it agreed. It's pretty hardcore that Helena's just like, no worries. I'll just tape up my entire torso <laughs> and get myself to a hospital. It's it's cool. I'm just shot through the chest. It's fine. <laughs> And of course, like, she walks in and actually, <laughs> I was talking to my cousin. My cousin's like, so my sister and I were watching the episode and we wondered, how did she get to the, the entrance desk, the admittance desk, with nobody offering to help her? Because she's bleeding profusely and is staggering through the halls of this hospital. Why did nobody stop to offer her help or anything? Like, how did she get that far? It's with, a good question. It's like people are walking by and nobody really gives her a second thought. Yeah, it's what a good question. What kind of bad part of town are they in that that goes unnoticed? Yeah. <laughs> but so yeah, I did not, you know, I did not notice the duct tape until I watched it the second time. Hardcore Helena again. And then we got an email from Colby who mentioned that they liked my comment that the rebar in Helena's side from the first season was maybe supposed to be a reference to the lance in Jesus's size during the crucifixion. And followed that up by saying, doesn't it kind of all make sense that the start of season two would be the night before Easter? I, for one, am very happy to see Helena back. It's not quite a resurrection, but I didn't really make the connection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there were lots and lots of resurrection joke tweets that night. And the next day. So there you go. So we did get kind of, we got a character resurrected, I guess, since they'd been lying through their teeth all hiatus that Helena was dead. She's not coming back. Helena's dead. It did also occur to me in the week since we recorded, I, I'm actually glad that they lied about it because that way I didn't get my hopes up about it. So I think that was part of also why I embraced them saying that she died because like then I made my peace with it and I couldn't have been disappointed. <laughs> if they came back and said she was dead, because that's what they'd been saying. So instead, they got the giddy, overjoyed reaction from me. You might have noticed. <laughs> I was kind of excited last week. But now we are just both, I think, completely worried about Helena. Yes. So worried. I'm so freaked out, because those, oh man, the farming prolethians, this can't be good, right? No. No, and, and you mentioned that you're actually now worried about her more now than when Sarah shot her. I am. I am more worried now <laughs> than when she was shot through the chest. And we we learned in this episode that Helena's a mirror twin. So she's Sarah's twin, and her organs are mirrored, so they're on the opposite side of her body than usual. And, and also explains her left-handedness, which we've made note of before. Yes, we noted that she's she's the only, only clone we've seen who writes left-handed. And I, we've also noted before that the show really likes 
reflections in, the, in when they're shooting. I forgot to make note if there were any in this episode, but there were a couple last week. They really like to shoot reflections. And so this is yet another kind of, you know, wink and nod to that. And I was like, the, when we learned that she was a mir- had the mirrored organs, I was like, okay, that explains better how she didn't wasn't immediately killed by both the rebar and the bullet. But it still doesn't quite explain for me how she survived all the blood loss and the trauma. Right. So I still feel like she's got some sort of advanced healing powers going on. Maybe I'm wrong, but she seems kind of able to bounce back from things she shouldn't be able to bounce back from. Agreed. Yeah. Because every single time I see episode four, I'm like, how does anybody lose that much blood and be okay? Yeah. At all. Yeah. Because even if she didn't get stabbed through the liver, it still would have injured other organs. There's still trauma involved there that's a big, you know, that takes, your body takes a big hit from that. Infection. Infection. That was a dirty rebar. So yeah, it d- doesn't fully explain how she was not killed by the, these prior incidents. Or comatose the entire season or something. <laughs> or something, yeah. More, more grievously wounded than she was. So going on to the to the farming Prolethians, as you've been been calling them, we learned that the the creepy guy who buttons his shirt up all the way, his name is Mark, and he seems to be kind of an adopted son to this guy Henrik, who's played by Peter Outerbridge, who's an actor that we know from Bomb Girls. Yes, and I I kind of like his character. I'm very intrigued by this new Prolethian guy. He worries me, which in a show like this is a good thing. No, it's good, but at the same time, because like I feel like he's more. You can empathize with him better, or he's a bit less just completely villainous than Tomas. Oh, Tomas was a monster. Yeah, Tomas was just a monster. You had no real uh, ability to sort of get inside Tomas's head, nor des- nor desire to Ooh. get in- get inside Tomas's head. But this guy is very interesting. I'm like, hmm, I want to know more about you. Because he doesn't completely dismiss the science either, which is sort of interesting. That that statement he had about. Uh you know, science without religion and religion without science. Yeah, he's, he says, he quotes Einstein, and he uh-huh. says, science without religion is lame, but religion without science is blind. And we hear him mention that he came through to his faith through through science at MIT, or through through studying science at MIT, and that, you know, puts my little warning flags up. Agroscience, I believe. Agroscience? Okay. I think so. Well, then maybe not so much, but okay, I think you're right. I think mm-hmm. he does mention agro. But the fact that he went to MIT, I'm like, does he know about the cl- cloning project? Probably not, but, you know, I'm always suspicious when watching this show. <laughs> and, yeah, he's just, you know, clearly is more accepting of science than we've seen from the Prolethians thus far. And he has that really interesting exchange with his daughter, Gracie, mm-hmm. where Gracie refers to Helena as it. Does it eat? And Henrik replies and says... Something like, of course oh, she, she does. does. And calls and he calls Helena sheep, which is, you know, we see Gracie using Tomas's language that he had used about the other clones, but... but Which makes me automatically hate Gracie. Yeah, but Henrik does not. But, you know, again, while we see Henrik perhaps treating Helena a little bit better or having a little better perspective on Helena than Tomas did, he's still very worrisome in regards to what his intentions are toward Helena. Yeah, because the stuff that he's talking about to Tomas at the end of the episode, the way this is going, I do not like where this is going. And I hope Helena gets better and destroys them all, quite frankly. <laughs> too harsh. Wow. Too harsh. <laughs> also, since I'm since I'm on a roll, <laughs> damn it, Tomas was back. 
and he was flagellating himself. And I'm like, flagellate yourself harder, Tomas, because he deserves worse than that. And then he got it. Because <laughs> yeah. Mark killed him. Yes, he gets shot through the head with, again, we have pneumatic nail guns coming into play. That's a bolt gun. Yeah, technically in this in this instance, it's a, it's a bolt gun. And I did not know this. My partner knew this because my partner grew up in a rural area and thus knows these things sometimes that it frightens me. But that's how you kill cows to slaughter them for, for meat is you, you, they use a bolt gun and they shoot the cow so that it severs its brainstem from its spinal cord. It's supposedly fairly humane and, and pretty painless for the cow. And so we see Tomas get murdered like an animal. And, you know, it just brings up all of this, all the sheep language that Tomas used in regards to the clones in season one. And here he gets killed like an animal. But it, but again, the Prolethean sort of putting humans on the same level as animals. Right, which is also where they're going with, or where Henrik was going with his talk about Helena. Because, of course, they introduce Henrik. He's inseminating a cow. And basically, at the end of the episode, the implication is that he wants to inseminate Helena. And then I go, and hope that Helena springs free and, you know. Whatever she has to do to escape, I'm okay with. (laughs) (laughs) Too harsh? Too harsh? Eh, I don't think so. So my big question is, how did Henrik know that Helena was Sarah's twin? Because Helena doesn't get that information until after Sarah has sort of rescued her from the cage in in the ship with Tomas. Mm -hmm. And we don't see Helena talk to Tomas ever again. I mean, maybe she did, but it seems unlikely that... She would have escaped the basement and gone back to Tomas. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm so confused. I really don't know. Yeah. I don't have an answer for you. Because, you know, Sarah figured it out when Amelia told her. So does that mean that Amelia was a Prolethean? Does that mean the Prolethians were, like, had bugged Mrs. S's house and that's how they knew? How did they know that Helena was Sarah's twin? I just, that's a big question I have from this episode. Oh, but wait. Okay, new... The Prolethians knew about Sarah and Kira because Mrs. S's cohorts had been bought by the Prolethians. So maybe somehow they knew through there. I don't know why they would have found that out, but I mean, obviously the Prolethians have, have influence in other areas. I have no idea. Because I, I, I understood why they knew Sarah was a mother, because Helena had told Tomas that, you know, like you said, Sarah and Kira go and stay with Mrs. S's friends who end up being Prolethians, but it's the whole, how did they know Helena was Sarah's twin? They knew she was a clone, for sure, but how did they know that she was Sarah's twin? That's my big question. Nothing? I don't know. Nothing specific? No. Well, they, they got the x-rays, so they knew that she was a mirror twin, or figured that would. But you don't have to necessarily be a twin to have know, organs on the opposite side. So I'm hoping the show will 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 tell us how they knew that, and that it's not just some sort of continuity error. Or maybe a, a listener will tell me how they how they would have gotten that information because I have a big question mark about that. Where your head should be. Exactly. Like Helena's drawings. Exactly. But yeah, so this episode ends. And I'm just so completely worried for all of our clones because we have, we have Sarah, Felix, and Kira going off to who knows where. 
leaving behind poor Allison with no support system. That made me so sad. I know. So Allison has... Take her with you. Allison has her husband, who's her monitor, and she's clearly spiraling downward with all the drinking and the, and the drugs. She's no allies to turn to. I mean, I guess she could turn to Cosima, but she doesn't want to tell Cosima and the other clones that she killed Ainsley. And now I'm worried about Allison's kids, too. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, Helena in the clutches of people who seem to want to breed her. And Cosima's really the only clone I'm not immediately worried about. I use the word immediately very purposefully because we still have her looming respiratory illness and the fact that she's working for this evil scientific institution and kind of lying about her intentions. So, yeah, I'm worried for all of our clones. But at least Except for has, Rachel. Ah, <laughs> uh, Rachel. But but at least Cosima has an ally in Delphine. Yes, at least Cosima has Delphine. She's she's one up on, on Sarah in that regard. For science help and snuggles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but speaking of Sarah, I thought it was very interesting that, you know, through the first season, we talked about this in our in our season one review episodes, we see Sarah's character development from her wanting to just sort of get Kira and run to being willing to stay and settle and grow a family with with both Kira and Mrs. S and these other women. But then we see in this episode, she runs. But I don't feel like this is Sarah regressing, because I feel like when Sarah wants to run at the beginning of season one, there's no immediate threat to Kira. You know, it, it's just, Mrs. S has my daughter. I don't want to deal with this. We need to just... Right. It's escaping responsibility is what it is in the first season. And this season, it feels very much like this is an act of being responsible. Exactly. Exactly. So even though we see her running away from a problem, it's because there's now this immediate threat that she's protecting both herself and her daughter from. It's not just, eh, I don't want to deal with this this woman and, and, and responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I guess I'd feel worse about them leaving Allison, except that as far as Sarah knows... Allison had kind of left it that she had signed with Dyad. She'd made an agreement with them, and she doesn't know about all the stuff that Felix knows about. So, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. And, okay, so Angie DeAngelis is on the case, and I'm excited <laughs> about it. I, I know some people, some fans, like, aren't thrilled with Angie. They have issues with Angie, but but I like Angie, and I'm glad that she's investigating. I'm a little worried that she's investigating just because something unfortunate might befall her, but Yeah, I liked that we saw Art being protective of Angie and sort of taking Sarah's advice to try to keep her out of it, but because Angie is Angie, she's not going to stay out of it. And I think Angie's a mildly antagonistic character, but I think she's a good character and I like her with the element that she adds to the story and I really like her interactions with Art. So I'm with you. Like, I can see where fans may maybe not be 100% thrilled with Angie, but I like what she adds into the mix. Right. Well, I guess my take on it is this, that yes, she's sort of antagonistic to Sarah, but I feel like Angie's intentions are good. Mm -hmm. Like she, she genuinely wants to figure out what happened to Beth and she wants to solve these mysteries. And, and when Art has that exchange with her, where he's basically cautioning her against investigating, I'm kind of like, but if she was telling Art not to investigate, we all know that Art would probably investigate it anyway, right? I mean, yeah. that's what everybody on this show does. Right. Whatever good advice that's for their own good that a friend gives them, they never take it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then we, we also got 
that interesting comment from in this episode from one of Mrs. S's associates before, you know, Mrs. S pins her hands to the table with various <gasps> utensils. I cringe so hard. Actually, no, I guess that was after she'd done that. So she has her hands pinned to the table. And Mrs. S asks why she betrayed her. And she makes that comment about, I found God, and it turns out the Lord has deep pockets. Uh, that's, it's an interesting statement. And uh, one of those things that kind of resonates in the real world. For sure. No, that's completely true. It's really often quite difficult for, for sort of lefty liberal organizations to find funding but religious organizations are very well funded they have a very large pool of constituents that donate money and i'm not saying all religious organizations are bad and do bad things but for sure religions have a a, a greater a deeper pocket for the to draw from than a lot of more you know some of these fringe group like mrs s belongs to mm-hmm so we also wanted, like we mentioned, we got some great feedback from folks about the premiere. Thank you so much for sending those in. And there were a couple of comments from folks that we wanted to mention. We got an email from Marshall, who apparently is is a, a John Fawcett fan, or maybe just a huge Orphan Black fan and, and very geeky. He actually mentions geeky fan service. So Marshall mentioned, I really want wanted to point out one piece of amazingly geeky fan service in this episode. In the first Delphine Cassima scene, just as Delphine collects the blood sample, the score reprises the main theme to Ginger Snaps, composed by Michael Shields, which is one of John Fawcett's best films. The parallels in the scenes are also uncanny, as that film focuses on the troubled relationship between two young women in crazy circumstances. And he also provided a link to the theme on YouTube. And I did listen, and I couldn't quite pick out... The exact similarity, but they did sound similar, so it may just be I haven't listened to them enough. Hmm. I haven't gone back and done the comparison yet. So, because I just I listened to the theme once, and then I watched the scene, and then I listened again. So it might just be I need to listen to the theme more to really nail it down there. But I do definitely hear some similarities between the the scores there. So thank you, Marshall, because I would not have figured that out. I just wanted to throw out there too. Marshall and I actually had another exchange about. Ginger Snaps 2, which I don't know if you know, has Tatiana Maslany in a major role. Oh, okay. And it's we were sort of talking about how her role, Ghost is her character's name in Ginger Snaps 2. She's, you can see sort of like an early version of like sort of Helena. I think Marshall said that she's sort of like a combination of Helena and Allison. <laughs> that <character>. Okay. <laughs> So it's something worth checking out if you're if you're curious or a Tatiana Maslany fan. But these are horror films, right? Yes. Yeah. So if you're not into werewolf, werewolf stuff, yeah. So if you're not into that, it may not be your thing. But if you're if you're really an orphan black fan, there's a lot of orphan blacky stuff going on there. See, I'm I'm not a horror movie fan. I'm not into like the creature movies like that. But but I watched it because Tatiana Maslany. Tatiana Maslany. Young Tatiana Maslany. Adorable and creepy. And then we got a, an email from Dan, and he, he sent a very long email. I'm not going to read all of it, but he did point out in regards to the interaction between Paul and Sarah in the premiere, where they're both facing each other down with guns. Dan says, Paul's reaction to Sarah's smack was interesting. I didn't really pick up on anything in Sarah's body language or expression to indicate she was only hitting him for appearance and presumed he'd let her go. But then afterwards, she doesn't immediately run, and he complains about her hitting his face. Maybe she was thinking Paul would pick up on her intent after knocking Rachel unconscious, and so far he has helped her within his limits. And... We forgot, we didn't really talk much about that, that interaction between Sarah and Paul. So I wanted to bring that up because when I rewatched, I did find that moment 
quite interesting. The fact that, you know, she pretends that he's that she's going to sort of let him handcuff her and take her in, and then she turns around and smacks him across the face with her gun. But then she looks kind of guilty about it. Like, she seems to feel badly that she did that, but she doesn't back down. Right. She's very uncertain after she does it, because she, she kind of can't decide whether to keep her gun on him or put it down. She sort of hesitates. She wavers in that moment. And I think that's really, yeah, it's really interesting, because I guess I get where she's coming from, you know? Because she's still not sure quite which side Paul is on. I'm not sure Paul's quite sure which side Paul is on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was very much kind of this moment of, you know, we may have had a thing. I kind of want to trust you, but I, I'm not going to just, you know, give myself up like this. This is, this isn't happening. And then Paul wavering and, and letting her go. And we didn't see him this episode. And so now I'm a little worried for Paul. Like what happened after, after that whole thing? He's studying up his Mandarin. languages so he can go to Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> That, I think, is going to do us for this week. Thank you again to everybody who sent in feedback. If you want to send in feedback, we'd really appreciate that. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at TatianaIsEveryone.com slash 30. Or you can send us an email to feedback at TatianaIsEveryone.com. Or you can send us a voice message by clicking on the send voice message link that's on the right side of the website. You can also find us on Twitter at TIE Podcast. This week, both Delphine's shopping list and Allison's tiny alcohol bottles were played by Tatiana Masani. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.